Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. And this is, again, a very unusual way to do Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's going to be Sanctity of Life Month that we're kicking off tonight. Sanctity of Life Sunday is always in mid-late January, which uh, observes the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision from the Supreme Court, which legalized abortion, of course, back in 1973. I begin with just a, a story, a very short one. Some of you may have heard about a young man who was walking along a seashore. Far ahead of him, he saw a distant figure Someone who, like him, was just walking along the shore, and this man would pause every few steps, and he stooped down and seemed to be throwing something into the sea. And his curiosity was aroused, so this young man ran forward. He tried to catch up with the man. And as he came closer, he saw that it was an older man, and the reason that he would stop every step or two was to pick up a starfish, amen, and fling it into the sea, into the ocean. And it was only then that the young man noticed that thousands of starfish had littered the beach for miles, just stranded there by the tide. And the young man felt this rising sense of anger and boiling up inside of him because he thought the older man was just wasting his time. It seemed so pointless that he couldn't wait up to catch up to this older guy to tell him so. And by the time the young man caught up to the older guy, he was running, he was out of breath, and he said, why are you doing this? You can't save all these starfish. It's useless. It doesn't matter. And the old man paused for a moment, and he looked down at the crusty starfish he had just picked up. And he turned it over slowly, and then he answered, It matters to this one. And with a slow, deliberate motion, he gently tossed the starfish back into the sea, back into life, where it goes for life. Just keep that phrase in mind throughout the message today and going forward. It matters to this one. This is what it means for Christians to have what the Bible calls an aroma, a smell, a fragrance of life. God's people, according to the Apostle Paul, should have an aroma of life. We should just smell like it. It should ooze out of us how we think, how we walk, how we talk. We, we project that. In fact, we project life to people that the Bible says are dead. They're in a fragrance from death to death. They're lost and dying on the way to eternal death. So you should know, I mean, the vast majority of Christians that I've met are pro-life when we're talking about the crisis of abortion because God and the Son Jesus are about life, about giving it. Protecting it. When a sinner is saved, we say he's saved from what? The wages of sin is death. It's life and death. When you're born again, you get a new life. So all that language, all this vocabulary, in the Bible all over the place is about life. Life matters to God, and because of that, it should matter to you and I. So when we hear the word, we should obey the word, and then we should share the word with others. 
That's what we aim to do here because God changes people that way and He kindles a movement that way. And we are, thankfully, in the midst of a, of a burgeoning new pro-life movement. And because of all that in this series, next four Sundays, including today, we're going to ask four basic questions for us and others to think about hard, answer them, and then be prepared to share these answers with others in dealing with what I would argue is the moral crisis of our time. Here are the four questions, beginning with today. What does God say about human life, including life in the womb? Secondly, what does God say about the shedding of innocent blood, including abortion? And thirdly, how do we bring the grace of the gospel, the gospel of life, to the guilt of abortion, so that people are forgiven and set free. And yes, we are going to talk about that. I would dare say there may be a person in this room, someone watching online, who has had an abortion, at least one, or knows someone very close to them who has. And some uh, have been taught to think that is the unpardonable sin. They can never get right with God because of that. And that's not true. As great a sin as it is, it is not the unpardonable sin. There is forgiveness, there is grace, there is mercy for those that have had an abortion and been part of it. And the fourth and last question, what does God call us to do, us to do, to stop the shedding of innocent blood? So we're going to answer the first question now with the very first phrase of the Bible, as Robert pointed out. It gives us the name of the book of Genesis. It's a Hebrew word, Bereshit, which means in the beginning, origins. And it makes sense. This is the book where everything started. And it's very appropriate then that we look at this issue and what God has said about us, mankind, how and why we got here. This is, this is the beginning of the human race here. Okay? So we're going to find out two things here. A creation definition and then a creation mandate. So I want to show you the creation definition first, which you find in verses 26 and 27. And right off the bat here, you're going to see God, of course, is the creator. He's the giver, sustainer of all human life. Job said that as well in his book. God defines life. We don't. In fact, verse 26 gives us there an idea. God said, again, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And you can picture insects in that. These would be four-legged creatures. Deuteronomy 30.20 goes on to say that God is our life. He's just about life. God is life, okay? The Bible says, in fact, whoever finds me, God says whoever finds me, finds life. The Word says He preserves life. He's the fountain of life. He's the redeemer of life. He's all about life. And the Christian view of human life then, value, is grounded on the reality that mankind was created by God. And not just in a very simple way, well, God the Father. You might not have noticed the language before, but the triune Godhead is involved in creating man in the image of God because you might have noticed in your English translation the plural pronouns, let us make man in our image. He's not referring to angels. And then after our likeness, what is he referring to? 
He's referring to the Trinity. This is the plural form of the noun, the name Elohim, the great, mighty, and all-powerful God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are involved in creation, in making us image bearers. To be an image bearer, which every human being ever conceived in history, human history is, means in a sense, we are like God. Wow, really? How are we like God? Well, if given an opportunity, as the video showed you, to grow and develop and postnatal, we possess a, a personality, an intellect. That means a mind, a will, and emotions. We can reason things out. We can think. We can create. God has shares all of those attributes with us. So God possesses those characteristics that separate us from the rest of creation. Plants and animals don't have that, okay? Animals and plants don't build rocket ships and don't conduct and compose symphonies. Mankind is the only species of creation made in the, as we say in Latin, the imagio dei, the image of God. And because of that, we're special. Mankind is special. Now, Jesus told us, are we not of more value than many sparrows? There's no comparison. And so from this text, we know that every human being is created with an intrinsic, inherent value that is equal, we're all equal in that sense, exceptional and eternal. We all have eternal value. We all have a soul. In fact, Ecclesiastes, the book there said, God has put eternity into our hearts. So our spirit and our soul, our ideas of our future destiny are always going upward. That's why so many people, unbelievers, are always talking about heaven upward. The rest of creation goes down. That's why we reflect God's image as image bearers. We have personhood. And we have to keep this truth in mind when we're talking to people and about how we treat fellow human beings, folks, especially those that don't think or talk or look like one, like us. Everybody on earth is an image bearer really worthy of equal, inherent, intrinsic worth, value, respect. These are natural rights that just flow from the Creator. They're endowed, they're given to us by God, not by government. In fact, the founders of this country knew that. You know that. They codified that in our nation's founding documents. Right? We have certain rights, inalienable rights, even though that truth hasn't always been applied consistently. So this is how we define life biblically. We go by God's Word, and that obviously refers to, as you'll see, the preborn or the unborn. Science, as you've seen, just affirms that. Unfortunately, too much of our society and our government institutions like ours don't agree. America, for more than a generation now, has been living in what I would call, as well as others, a culture of death. First, it was... Roe v. Wade, and that decision legalizing abortion, since that led seamlessly into euthanasia or assisted suicide. Some of you that study on this may or may not have heard the name of an infamous philosopher, Peter Singer, a professor of bioethics at Princeton University. He actually has pushed, I'm not making this up, he has pushed for rights, 
He has pushed for abortion rights to be extended to newborn babies. And he's got quite an audience. He's, in, in other words, newborns should be allowed to be aborted until the baby is, what he says, self-aware. He said, quote, killing a newborn baby is never equivalent to killing a person, end quote. So that's where we're at today. The pro-abortion movement is so extreme that it's moved already from the infanticide of partial birth abortion to afterbirth abortion. According to a summary of research from a number of countries, 92% of unborn children who are diagnosed with Down syndrome will be aborted. Nation of Iceland actually decried that as a victory, that number in their country, because they described it as eliminating the Down syndrome problem. I had once the privilege of baptizing a problem like that in our church a few years ago. She was then a 24-year-old young lady who was a living testimony to the sovereign grace and mercy of God. Her mother was poor, uh, pushed to abort her upon that diagnosis, and she refused. And she kept this afflicted special child with special needs because her life mattered to God, and this woman knew that. But much of the world sees this differently. Children diagnosed prenatally with spina bifida are aborted 65% of the time. And this is interesting. One out of every four preborn children diagnosed with cleft lips or palates, those defects, birth defects, abnormalities of the mouth area, lips, and so forth, which are conditions, by the way, correctable by surgery. One out of every four have been aborted for that. We tend to say in our culture of death, if it's imperfect, kill it. God says if he's imperfect, protect him. And so all of this has contributed to the modern-day holocaust of our times. Abortion, I don't hesitate at all in using that word or that language because over the 40, near 48 years that abortion has been legal in our country, over 63 million unborn children have been killed legally in this country. And yes, you can do the number really quick, the math. That number is 10 times greater than the Jewish holocaust of World War II. So what do we do with that? What do we do with this information? What will we do about it? First, I can tell you, let's tell the truth when we're talking about what constitutes or defines life. You saw the video. Today, I'm thankful for the ultrasound, the sonogram technology we have, which continues to confirm what should be just an obvious answer to the question we're posing. Years ago, a prominent biologist and professor in Paris stated, quote, after fertilization has taken place, a new human being has come into being. He said, this is no longer a matter of taste or opinion. Each individual has a very neat beginning at conception, end quote. And I will tell you, abortion activists deep down in their heart of hearts, many of them know this, and they're just ashamed of it, guilty about it, and they tend to cover it up. Years ago, when I was doing a local television show in this community. It was a talk show, and we were talking about this issue, and I invited uh, a woman who was the leader at the time of the National Organization of Women, was a very feminist organization, and the grandson of Margaret Sanger I had on the show. Margaret Sanger, of course, is the founder of Planned Parenthood. And I put up a full screen picture 
for them to react to um, of that famous picture that came out, in, I think it was Time Magazine several years ago, where a, a neonatal surgeon is trying to get a child out of the womb in an emergency situation. I don't know if you've seen this. It's worth checking out. The child reaches up out of the womb and grabs the finger of the surgeon. So I looked at my guests and I said, what is that? Who is that? Is it human? The question we're posing tonight. They didn't answer the question until we got to the commercial break on those talk shows. You always learn more in the commercial breaks than what's being taped on the air. And I asked them again, and they said, that's human? Absolutely. I'm not going to admit it on the air. So I said, you agree, and you support, you're an advocate for the taking of innocent human life. I said, yeah. You just, I'm off the record. Some activists, though, they're out of the closet on this. They're on the record. One is an author of an article that was published in Salon Magazine recently. And the title says, So What If Abortion Ends Life? This is an actress, uh, activist, I should say, Mary Elizabeth Williams. She admitted, she admitted this, pro-abortionists were being hypocritical in calling the preborn a clump of cells on the one hand while celebrating the birth of a pregnancy with a reveal party or mourning a miscarriage on the other hand. She argued, quote, that life is life, and there are some lives worth sacrificing. That view simply is that the unborn just don't deserve the same rights as the born. Because the sexual revolution is so hell-bent on moving on at the expense of the freedom of the unborn. You saw a fetal heartbeat tonight, right? Very early in a pregnancy. Well, there have been government legislative initiatives all over the country called fetal heartbeat beat bills to prohibit that and all almost universally of the national pro-abortion organizations have opposed it. So even while they're looking at a heartbeat, it's, you, you can't argue, you can't question what you're looking at, they would still be in favor of that abortion. So we're going to develop thoughts like this as we go on and how you respond to it as the series goes on. And then the creation definition goes here. Look at verse 27 of our text with the gender. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And just so, you know, we're in these times today of the sexual revolution, so you know, just from this account, there is no transgender confusion in the creation definition. Just male, just female, sexual Gender dysfunction, all of that comes as the result of the fall. It's sin. And so Genesis 1 and 2 tells us God not only created this planet and all life on it in six literal days, but He created it mature, by the way. So it would be in position already to start to reproduce, procreate, multiply. Yes, if you ever wanted to know the answer to the all-time question, the chicken came before the egg. Got to have a chicken to get an egg. So God created, He shaped, He formed the male gender first. And from Him, Adam, which means man, He formed Eve primarily to help man. And in fact, you should be reminded this is obviously mankind's first married couple. Chapter 2 tells us, a man shall 
leave or his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So to become one in marriage, one man, one woman for one lifetime on earth. And if you're watching reality TV shows about polygamy, poly, many wives or spouses or marriages, that's, that's the next frontier you may be looking at in the revolution. I would caution you not to watch that. That's just abnormal and I think problematic to be entertained by something like that which God so seriously calls sin. So again, what is the unborn? When does human life begin? The scientific view, not religious, mind you, that you already saw pictured plainly, straightforward, happens at conception as a biological fact in the video that we saw. Scripturally, I want to take you to a couple of different places, like this book and Luke 1 that answers the question. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 and the Christmas account, appropriately enough, as we're two days after Christmas. Before that, I will read Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 as you're flipping over to Luke 1. The first children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, right? Listen to what Genesis 4.1 says. Now Adam knew, and that is an intimate Knowing, by the way, not knowledge, but intimacy. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Two things should stick out to you very quickly there. Number one, with the help of the Lord. Lord's in on creation, obviously, with each and every child that's conceived. And number two, the conjunction and there is bringing together conceived and bore Cain. Cain is identified as a person being named at conception and then later born. So, you go to Luke 1, and that account you'll see in verse 31. And this is the birth story of Jesus being prophesied from Gabriel the angel, who says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Conception, bearing, with son, always together. And you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Yahshua, the Lord who saves. And then verse 36, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So God made that happen. And Elizabeth was already at this time six months pregnant with whom? We know very well. John the Baptist. So when did Jesus and John become sons or male human beings? The biblical answer is at conception, when the two cells come together, the fertilization. Civilizations knew this for hundreds of years before modern science and the technology actually knew this. I want to show you another text as well, if you would. Psalm 139 really illustrates this well that David wrote, Psalm 139. Verse 13, saying to the Lord, David writes, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together, me together, in my mother's womb. So he's a me in the womb. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So from eternity past, God knew everyone that he would conceive. And then Jeremiah 1.5 adds, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I chose you. There it is. Chosen, 
before the foundation of the world. And he is formed in the mother's womb by God as a person. Before you were born, it says there, I set you apart. So we already had personhood. So we're first conceived as a person in the mind of God from eternity past, and then in our mother's womb. So God, if you haven't gotten the idea already, God is pro-life. He loves children, lots of them. And he's angered and he's saddened, I think, from his word, when children pre-born and post-born are abused and killed, regardless of whether a society and a government legalize it or try to legitimize it. That is the taking of innocent human life. That's why the intentional killing of the preborn was a crime according to the law of Moses. So you have conception, and then you have humanity, as we find in that same account of Luke chapter 1, verse 44. For behold, listen to this, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. How about that for personhood? Elizabeth is talking about the greeting that comes from Mary to Elizabeth, and John the Baptist is leaping for joy. And the Greek word there, baby in the Greek, it's the same word referring to a child in chapter 2, verse 12, as a newborn. So preborn, born, the original language of the New Testament, has them both as a child. So in the biblical worldview, a child is a child. No matter its size, location, environment, no less a theologian than Horton the elephant had it right in Horton here's a who, a person is a person no matter how small. He got it right. He did. No matter the size, let me say this again, no matter the location of where it lives or the environment, their level of maturity or degree of dependence. And we'll all unpack that in this series. So when the pregnant Mary meets the pregnant Elizabeth, I mean, John the Baptist, six months old. John is slightly larger than your hand at this point. And the unborn child, John, is reacting with glee to this report from the mother. The Lord has come. So at conception, just to finish this point, you are living, you are distinct, and you are unique. Okay? From there, a human being develops in stages just like an already born child does. Look at your children today. How different do they look from when they were newborns and toddlers? I notice that with the families with children we have. I'm just amazed, fascinated by the growth and level of development in the children we have here. It's natural stages of maturation. We've seen that. Human life is unique in the eyes of God and begins at conception according to God and then affirmed by science. And so it should be protected. Let's look at the creation mandate of verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion or reign over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every other living thing that moves on the earth. Multiply. Increase in number. Make many of. The Hebrew tells us, subdue the earth, bring it under submission, govern it. That's what we are to do, mankind, as we have dominion. So this is the dominion or cultural mandate. In other words, the Lord's told the world's first parents, we made you in some ways like us. The world and its resources, they were made for you to enjoy. So rule and reign over the creation responsibly. 
including animals, and have lots of babies. That's a good thing. It would be a blessing to God, to His creation, and His people. Bearing children and raising families is commended by God as a sign of divine favor or blessing, what we call grace. Adopting a child, similarly, whenever possible, is a blessing. I take you to Psalm 127. Familiar passage. Verses 3 to 5. Which says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the woman is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. How about that? So, God's Word is telling us children are not, as so many people think today, an inconvenience or a problem. How will we go to vacation if we have another child? What about another car or a better home? Are children a roadblock to that? Are they a problem? God's Word says they're a blessing. So a critical discussion really is needed for us to consider how contrary the biblical view of children and family are to our modern post-Christian culture of death. Because the worldwide culture has given us what? China's one-child abortion policy. You're familiar with that. It's based on gender discrimination against females. They've been killing off female babies for years to control their population. You have things like embryonic stem cell research that kill those who feel or their families feel are no longer useful to society. And I believe this, as I've blogged before, we've preached on this on Sanctity of Life Sunday, minority communities, many of them in poor areas, are targeted for abortions that just deplete their population. If you didn't know that before, you must know that now. Hardly any, why? Because hardly anyone in mainstream media or education is talking about that. But we should. Somebody who did is the notable African-American celebrity Kanye West. He's called for the black community to reject abortion as child killing. He said this, quote, Planned Parenthoods have been placed inside cities by human supremacists to do the devil's work. Amen. End quote. Research here locally shows 90% of Miami's three-plus dozen abortion facilities are located in either black or Hispanic inner-city neighborhoods. What a coincidence. A few years ago, New York City reported that more black babies are aborted today than are born alive. If and when the black community rejects abortion, I'm telling you, the business of abortion will collapse. Because it's so dependent on that. So you see, the reason our church ministry, so many individual Christians make such a big deal about this issue as the moral crisis of our times, is because God, it's a life and death issue, and God calls us to protect the innocent and the unborn who just happen to be the most vulnerable and innocent of all people. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 says, Open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Is there any more defenseless and mute a community and needy than the unborn? Abortion robs the unborn of an opportunity to have experienced a full life. Here, 
So talk about need, I mean, this is the most basic fundamental human right and need we have, the right to life. I, I'm, I'm so amazed by all the calls for special rights and people want their rights, willing to take away the most basic of all, which is the right to live. It's amazing. It's a declaration principle. I've always gone to. Our nation's founders said these inalienable rights given by God are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm waiting for someone to explain to me how you can pursue liberty and happiness if you're not alive. When that happens, tell me. Help me to understand that. People are not authorized to kill each other at will. Only God can authorize that in terms of justice, such as he does with capital punishment. So all that said, we need to be compassionate. I want to go back to that again, as well as confident when we talk about this issue. God's forgiveness is available within the sanctity of life. Okay? God is sovereign in the purposes of evil and suffering. We've talked about that recently. Yet he still wants and commands his church to work with him to achieve his kingdom purposes. Jesus said when he was questioned by Jews in the Gospel of John, he said, he must work. I must work, labor to do the works of him who sent me while it is night. While it is day, I should say, because night is coming when no one can work. What did he mean by that? He meant day and night are analogous to the times of life and death. Day is life, night is death. So the Lord seems to be saying there that we need to get busy as disciples in the daytime while we have the gospel with us, the light of the world, we have Christ, so let's get busy with kingdom work. And it's amazing. We get to join him in this like the apostles at the time. He said, we must work. Paul in Ephesians 5 said, we must make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Day and night again. So what is the work of God that we are to do on this issue? And we'll come back to this as we go along. Well, the things that Jesus did. The first thing Jesus did was he relieved suffering in his ministry. We're going to talk about before we're done ways that we can further relieve the suffering of those that want to keep their children, keep their pregnancies, and even deal with those post-abortively in our sidewalk counseling and prayer ministry. Number two, Jesus rebuked wrong. He corrected those that were wrong on this issue. You have every right to do that. You must. Someone has to speak for the unborn. They can't speak for themselves, can they? So we need to speak for the unborn. Lovingly. Number three, Jesus taught truth. That's what we're going through. We're developing here a theology, a doctrine of life for you to take to the streets. Number four, Jesus encouraged the troubled. We talked about that. We want to encourage those that are wrestling with this decision. Many, many women right now are pressured, feel like they have no way out and seek an abortion because the father of the child and other family members are insisting, pushing them to get it done. They see no legitimate way out. They need to be encouraged. And number five, Jesus touched lives. So we're obviously called to do that compassionately. And number six, he won the lost. And we're to do the same with the gospel of life. As we just kind of wrap things up here, we have to tell people struggling with the problem, particularly the lost, that life is hard. Yes, God is good. Christ is coming. And then tell them that He came first to save and forgive their sins now, including the sin of abortion, as we mentioned earlier. 
He saves anyone that comes to him with guilt and shame over their sin, heartbroken, needing to be brought home, to be forgiven, to have peace with God. That is available to tell afflicted people. We've got to tell afflicted people that have afflicted others that we can't see or trust in Christ for salvation unless you understand first that you're needed forgiveness. You've committed sins that need forgiveness. You need a Savior. All right? So I'll close with someone who has been on the other side of redemption through all of this that we've been talking about tonight. Chelsea Peterson. She lives and works in the heart of Washington, D.C., where she spends her days working on adoption and foster care policy for the U.S. Congress. And she observed her birthday a few years ago at the time the annual March for Life rally was held there, which is coming up in January. And she said, in a grand irony, the two events coincided this year because she considers her birthday to be a bittersweet day. Why? She said, I was born out of wedlock to a poor teenager in Eastern Europe. The terrified young woman who gave me life is my hero. She made a courageous choice to be my mother, even if she meant she could only remain in the role for a few days. She gave her up for adoption. Another woman, equally heroic, stepped into my life. She willingly became my mother and made me her permanent daughter. Both women loved me. Both made choices that will affect my life forever. That's a life that mattered, right? Chelsea said then, quote, as thousands gathered on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. today, she was speaking to the crowd, she said, I'll remember the courageous woman who made it possible for me to celebrate my birthday today. I want to use my voice to advocate and speak up for those who don't have one. She asked, are you willing to lovingly advocate for the unborn? Will you use your breath to speak life into the hurting, the helpless, the broken? Will you use your lungs to proclaim that every life, no matter the ethnicity, disability, or sex, has innate value and is dearly loved by God? End quote. Well, I can answer that. Yes, we will at this church, at Christ Community Church. Why? Because the answer to the question is clear. Is it human? Is yes. And every life matters to God, and therefore the intentional taking of an innocent life is a tragedy, is tragic, is sin, and we're going to call it out. And we're going to minister to those affected. Let's pray. Lord, we know that abortion is seen as a morally complex issue, but it's really not. The status of the unborn is key. That clarifies. So we pray that friends and family members would not be distracted by side issues that miss the point here entirely. We all know how hard it can be to talk about this issue when we have the opportunity. So I pray that all of us here, our families, and our pro-life friends would have confidence in the truth and act on it. We do not need an excuse for our sin. We need an exchange. The lost needs Christ's, Christ's righteousness for their sinfulness. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the most important thing in life for people to know, especially those, Lord, that have had abortions, is that Jesus can save them from their sin. And I pray someone right now is crying out for that grace of healing, that mercy, that saving grace that comes 
from making that commitment to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior and receive that peace, joy, and refreshment that comes by becoming a child of God, by being born again. Help, help Holy Spirit, these people to see that they need this, Lord. And fill us with your Spirit that we would take this message out in a new, refreshed way and grow in the grace and wisdom of Christ over these next few weeks with the gospel of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And we said... Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurchcom.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage. 